0: This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is a full-service digital marketing agency headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, that creates a digital impact for your company. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I picked from my collection. We have a very special guest this week. He's best known for his longtime collaboration with Brian Adams, co-writing songs such as Cuts Like a Knife, Heaven, Summer of 69, and many more. Other songs that he's written have been recorded by artists like Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Heart, Glass Tiger, Kiss, and Roger Daltrey. He's also a member of the Order of Canada. I'm so excited to welcome Jim Valens to Guest That Record. Jim, how are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. So you're in New York right now, is that correct? I, I am. Nice. How is it out there?
1: Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day. Uh, and if not for COVID, I would be looking forward to uh, a show tonight or a concert or a restaurant or many of the things that New York has to offer, but uh, it's... Uh, despite what some people think it's not over yet
0: that's good to hear yeah how long have you been in New York
1: uh three or four years
0: yeah that was the actually the last place I traveled to uh outside of Canada before covid so I would I would love to go back one day and what was uh, your,
1: what was your uh, reason for your trip
0: uh well I was actually on a tour um we played uh we, we did a little tour uh it was like sort of a package tour through the south. So we played in Georgia and then finished up in Nashville. And um, me and my keyboard player just decided to go to New York for a few days. And uh, yeah, it was really fun.
1: It's a real special place. It really is.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Uh, So to start things off, I always like to ask, uh, what was the first album or song that made you take music seriously?
1: Uh, I'm not sure it was an album or a song per se, but uh, so 1964, I'm 11 years old in grade five, not interested in music particularly. It wasn't even on my radar. I, I had, had a couple of piano lessons, but uh, just, you know, I mean, the radio, my mom would have the radio on, but I wouldn't really pay attention. And then one night, one Sunday night, uh, February 9th, 1964, I'm um, watching what was called the Ed Sullivan Show, which was on every Sunday night. It was kind of a family tradition. We'd all gather around the TV and watch the jugglers and comedians and whoever else was on. And on this particular night, the first act was, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And I was like, what? It just absolutely gobs me. These four odd looking guys at I mean at the time it's you know they were like aliens from another planet so the first song they played was um, All My Lovin' and I was just mesmerized so I guess that's the first song that really knocked my socks off I didn't even know what song I was listening to but um, a few days later uh, I got my mom to take me downtown and I bought the Beatles single She Loves You and I don't know if it was at the same time or not, but I also bought the Dave Clark five single, uh, Glad All Over. So those are the my first two purchases. And from that minute on until this very day, just music has been really just the focus of my life.
0: It's funny, um, you talk about uh, seeing the Beatles at 11, because that's when I discovered the Beatles, was when I was 11. I heard Paperback Writer. And to this day it's still like probably the coolest sounding guitar I've ever heard and that that opened my door to you know be where I am musically today so it's kind of it's interesting how we were the same age but you know like 40 years apart basically
1: well paperback paperback writer that guitar you're hearing is actually Paul McCartney they they cut right. that track with Paul on guitar Ringo on drums I'm not uh either George or John on guitar I think but it was and then Paul overdubbed the bass later, but, but he, he played guitar. And the pictures I've seen from that session, I mean, you know, these days conventional wisdom is you isolate all the instruments. You don't, don't want any leakage. He was sitting right in front of the drum kit, mm-hmm. uh, literally like he and Ringo were like a two feet apart when they did that track. So yeah, pretty it, amazing.
0: Yeah. And it, it's also funny because when I was in New York, when you're talking about the Ed Sullivan show, I went uh, to a taping of the Stephen Colbert show and it was kind of, weird to think like, wow, this is where the Beatles did Ed Sullivan all those years ago.
1: I've not been, but I hear it's not a big room.
0: It's not. No, that was the other surprising thing is, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty small. Uh, so you got your start professionally as the drummer for PRISM. And it's funny because uh, when I first read about you years ago, when I was starting to get into Brian Adams uh, and I saw that you were in PRISM, I was like, oh, hey, my dad has some of their tapes in the basement there. Um... But have drums always been your main instrument?
1: Um, well, again, starting about the age of 11, after I saw the Beatles, I started begging my parents for um, a drum kit. That was what I wanted to do. I decided of the four Beatles, I, I wanted to to be Ringo. Um, and so it took a couple of years, but my parents finally gave in. I think it was Christmas 1965, I think, they bought me a guitar. And right around the same time, my grandmother bought me a used drum kit. So I started guitar and drums uh, at the same time. Right. So, um, but then um, I'm a better drummer than I am a guitar player. So that was kind of the career path. Um, I, you know, played in, in sort of weekend dance bands all through high school. And then um, into my 20s in Vancouver, there was a pretty vibrant club scene in the 70s. And so I was in in various bands, and we'd play like six nights a week, you know, um, Monday through Saturday, and and that was my my bread and butter for for years and years. And then I got lucky enough to get into session work. So I would, you know, get up every morning, go to the studio, and play on a McDonald's commercial or something, and then I'd get together with Brian at, at lunchtime, and we'd write until I don't know at nine o'clock, and then I'd go do uh, play in a club. So I was you know working like, you know, twenty hours a day for. For um, a few years there, just um, there was so much going on.
0: Yeah, and um, so you mentioned Brian. You you guys kind of had like a chance meeting set up in about 1978. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Jan- January 78. I just I just ran into him at Longham McQuaid in Vancouver. Oh, nice. And uh, we had a. Uh, I was with a friend who knew him. And she introduced us, and we had a quick chat, and decided to get together, which we did a couple of days later. And again, we 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 never stopped mm-hmm. to this to this day.
0: And uh, what what did you see in him at the time that made you think it was going to be a successful partnership?
1: Uh, he he was eighteen at the time, so um, uh, and I was a few years older, but there uh, he just had that vibe that you could just tell he was hungry, tenacious. I didn't I, until we actually got into a room together. I didn't realize how talent he was. He you know sang great, played great guitar, and um, and we started writing songs together, and that that clicked right away. So, I mean, I knew really early on like, that he was uh, a force. You know, he was really talented, ambitious, and unstoppable. So, um, yeah, we just right out of the gate, we 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 were just uh, writing every day, like literally every day we got together
0: and how do you two work together when you write songs like does one guy sort of focus on the lyrics and the other guy does the music or is it like an even workload
1: it's an even thing and it, and it really depends like <coughs> excuse me a song like heaven uh, i was sitting at the piano and Brian was standing next to me and just kind of you know you just go fishing for chords and melodies and snippets of lyric and whatever you know it, you, you know how it, the process is it's very random and and um just stuff pops up and you go, well, that sounds great. And you pop that in. And, you know, so with that song, I played piano, he sang, I'm trying to think, cuts like a knife. I think, I think he was playing guitar and I was playing bass while while we were writing that. And I used to like, I used to like playing bass sometimes when we wrote, because it it put me a little bit in the driver's seat because, you know, you can play a, a G on the bass and then Brian can play a G on guitar but I can move that up to a C on the bass. And even if he doesn't change the chord, I've forced some, I forced it to go somewhere. And, and sometimes it's even a really cool kind of juxtaposition. I, I might play a bass note that has n- no business being part of that chord, but it's like, whoa, that's cool. You know, so, and then sometimes we, we'd both um, be playing guitar. So it was, it was really different every time.
0: Right. And it's funny going back to the Beatles, um, because every time I've sort of read about uh, how a Beatles song was written, uh, Paul, for example, would always be like, well, you know, I wrote most of that one, but John did the bridge. That was his bit. Um, So are there songs that you and Brian have done where you can point out like something that was totally yours, like um, like Run To You, for example, what's something in that song that you came up with?
1: I mean that might be the worst example because that was such a a collaborative thing. But we started with the with the riff, you know, the da da do da I mean I'm trying to remember. Um we we were trying we were trying to write a song for Blue Oyster Cult and and their song, um Don't Fear the Reaper is a riff song, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to remember uh, <laughs> I can't remember how we started it it, it was nothing at all like it was nothing like that it started off somewhere completely different and just we just sat across from each other and I would play something and then Brian would play something and we just ended up there sorry I should be able to play it better than that but um (laughs) So it was very collaborative, that song, but I'm trying to think of something. Um...
0: Wasn't uh, Summer of 69 sort of, like the lyrics were sort of more um, about your experiences?
1: Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to say that, but, but people point to the fact that I was 17 and 69 and Brian was only 12, so it must be my song. Um, I mean, Robert Robertson wasn't even born in 1865, but wrote a great song about the civil war. So, you know, it's not like you had to be there. Mm-hmm. um uh i mean we both writing that lyric pulled ideas from our our school days and you know first girlfriends first bands that sort of thing and again it was very collaborative so i mean i i pretty much know what what part of that lyric is is mine but then brian would probably point to it and say well you know that, you know that was my experience too like you know played it till my fingers but i mean that both of us right you know <laughs> had that experience so Pretty hard to say but there there are a couple of songs i'm just i'm trying pretty hard to think now i'd have to look at a list there are a couple of songs where i came in with a complete verse and then brian had a complete chorus and we just put them together you know and boom you know mm-hmm. a song there's been a few of those um but a lot of times we would just sit down with nothing you know and and just start jamming and you know, it's just randomly something pops up and you go, oh, that sounds nice. Let's keep that. And then that, and just next thing you know, you've got a song.
0: Yeah. And um, it's, uh, I, I, for those listening there, Jim brought out his guitar to uh, play the uh, riff to run to you there. So that was cool. Um, Poor, poorly. And uh, the uh, the commercial peak that you guys had with the, the Reckless album, which I, uh, I've i got right here. Um, and I like, uh, I like that uh, they, they put your uh, picture there on the, the sleeve. Yeah, that was
1: nice of that, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, the commercial peak that you guys had with that album is the stuff that most artists dream about. It was number one record in both Canada and the U.S. And in the U.S., heaven reached the top of the Billboard Hot 100. And I think that's the most impressive part for you. You know, there are artists like Bruce Springsteen and... Bob Dylan and the Who and Jimi Hendrix who never had a number 1 song. So you've got th- those guys beat there. Uh, what what did you think of the success of that album at the time it came out?
1: Well, it's it's thrilling. I mean, it's it's um it, it's kind of what what you hope would happen. You 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 know as a songwriter and as an artist for Brian, you you, you want to have hits and, and number 1 is kind of the uh, you can't get any higher than that. So um Brian was touring at the time. It was um, I guess it was '84. I, I don't remember the exact date. Uh, you, you might know better than I when it when the album went to number one or when it was single with the single went to number one. But Brian was out on the road with his band. I was back in Vancouver, and um, and we just were watching the charts. So it, it would come out. Billboard would, would release the numbers every Tuesday once a week so we would see number 89 and the next week it'd be number 64 and the next week number 32 and we just saw it climbing up the charts and you go wow you, do you think we can make it all the way to number one and I mean there was a lot of competition back then there was a lot of really good music on that radio so um, uh, and we just kept watching it so I finally when it got up to around number nine or eight or something I I was talking to Brian on the phone. This is before email, even. This is you know before the internet. And I said, "Look, if it goes to number one, I'll I'll fly to wherever you are, and we'll 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 celebrate." And um, where was it? It was uh, Cincinnati, I think. So I so I flew out, and we had a had a little celebration at the hotel. And um it was it, it was it was thrilling. Of course, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's what you it's, it's what you hope for.
0: For sure. And so, yeah, you, you guys had that success. And then um, you had a very long period where you didn't work together. Uh, the last album you were credited on for a long time was Waking Up the Neighbors, where you got the co-writing nod on songs like Depend On Me. Uh, and those songs had been written before Brian had started working with Mutt Lang.
1: Uh, yeah, kind of. Depend On Me started off as, as a different song that Brian and I had co-written and then Mutt came in and like the, your thing, you said a minute ago about Paul would write something and then John would come in and write the middle, the middle eight. That's what they used to call a bridge back in those days. Um, so yeah, Mutt, Mutt took some things that Brian and I had started and added his, his bits to it. So that's how there ended up being some three-way splits, me and Brian and Mutt. But, um, you know, like I said, from January 78 until August 89, uh, and I remember it was August 89, because that's uh, um, just after my son was born. Um, Brian and I pretty much spent, you know, seven days a week, 12 hours a day together, uh, unless he was touring. Um, we, we were in a in a room with no windows, sitting across from each other, you know, for countless hours. And I, I don't care who you are. That's, at some point, that's kind of, you know, if you're, you know, imagine being taken hostage by, terrorists and they put you and somebody in a, in a cell, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, for a couple of well, for 10 years, you know, you're going to start to get on each other's nerves. So I think Brian and I just, just kind of burned out, you know, I, I, I think, I think we should have taken a break. In fact, I think I suggested to him that we take a break because we were in the middle of writing in August 89, we were in the middle of writing or towards the end of writing, um, into the Fire had already been done. Yeah, I guess we were on to waking up the neighbors. And we, and we just burned out. You know, we just totally burned out. So I, 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 Brian didn't want to take a break. So I said, you know, I'm taking a break.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and, and and you know, it, it was a little testy. It didn't end on a really happy note. And and for, I, I forget how many years, five or 10 years, we, we didn't work together. You know, I we went and worked with Aerosmith and Alice Cooper and other people. And, and Brian continued on with Mutt. Um and, and then it just kinda, you know, we were we were brothers, you know, it just kinda drifted back together at some point. Started talking and then sending each other some ideas. Uh, by this time there was email. You know, if Brian had a song idea, he'd send it over and see if I had anything to contribute, and vice versa. And then we just started writing it together again. So, you know, it was a it was a, a, a difficult decade, but I think it was necessary. And I think we came back closer as a result
0: yeah and I, I was gonna say it's cool you guys were able to sort of get back together writing again and you know you guys made a record with jeff lynn here in the last few years um, yeah that
1: was a load of fun
0: and you wrote the pretty woman musical together uh did your long hiatus of writing with brian change the way you work together or was it just sort of like old times again
1: yeah i don't think we ever had a, a, a way of working together particularly you know so um and, and again it was just different every time every time we sat down to write a song it was you know a different approach and, um uh, different uh, methods even so we didn't have a formula so I, you know we just kind of picked up where we left off and um i mean unless you have um a template or something like the, the pretty woman musical you know we were working to an existing script and story storyline, which really informed our lyric writing, obviously, because we had to uh, stay true to the story. So when you have something like that, then then it's kind of, not imposes, but it kind of dictates uh, where you're going to go with, especially with the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And, and, and style-wise, also with the Pretty Woman musical, the, the director would want a rock song for this section and a ballad for that section. So, you know, we're working to, to some degree to, to some set instructions. But, you know, we had a lot of free reign too. But if we were just sitting down to write a song for Brian, um, and I'm not sure we necessarily did that because we'd we'd just write and then we'd go, maybe that's not right for Brian and we'd give it to Tina Turner or something. So we were just writing to write. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess Brian, even like uh, Run to You, um, after Blue Easter Cult uh, turned it down, um, it just went on the shelf. Brian had no interest in it. And it, it was his producer Bob Clearmount. Towards the end of the Reckless sessions, said, "Look, we're we're at least a song short here. What else have you got?" And and Brian has said, "Well, I got this song run to you, but I don't really like it." And he played it for Bob, and Bob said, "I think it's great. I think we should cut it." And and that's how it ended up on the album. So yeah, it was never we were never sure what song was going to work for Brian.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, Brian has got his new. So happy it hurts album coming out fairly soon. Uh, I wanted to know, did you contribute anything to it? I noticed. I noticed he's working with Mutt again.
1: Yeah, I, I've got three songs on it, so uh, I think he wrote. I haven't. Even I haven't heard the whole album. Um, I think he's got some songs with Mutt, some songs with Gretchen uh, Peters, and uh, I know that I've got three songs. So
0: nice. That's good. Uh, good to hear there. One thing I wanted to spend some time talking about was your role. Your role in uh, this here, Tears Are Not Enough.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: Which was, uh, for those who don't know, was Canada's answer to We Are The World and Do They Know It's Christmas. Um, I was reading about your involvement on the song through your website, JimValance.com, which has some great reading if anyone's interested to learn more about the songs you've worked on. And it was kind of a random encounter that you had with David Foster that got you involved in the project.
1: Yeah, well, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, in the 80s, I was doing a lot of session work, um, uh, commercials for you know various products, r- radio and TV commercials as a drummer. So on that particular day, I was at uh, Little Mountain Sound Studio in Vancouver and Little Mountain had two studios, uh, Studio A and Studio B, but there was a common lobby. So I was sitting in the lobby um, between sessions and <clears throat> David Foster came out of studio B. My session was in studio A. He came out of studio B, like, looked like, I don't know, he'd just seen aliens or something. He was very, like, agitated and, like, looked around, like, said, Jim, Jim, you have a studio, right, in your house? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, we need to write something. I just got off the phone with Quincy Jones and he wants uh, a song from Canada uh, for African famine relief um when can i come over i went uh <laughs> okay um i don't know tonight <laughs> so uh brian was actually out on tour due back the next day i think so david and i got together that night at my home studio and started working on uh what would eventually be Cheers are not enough and then brian uh, came back from the tour the next day and then he Hurried over when he heard we were doing some stuff and he he jumped in um, and we we wrote a song and, and, I- and that was we finished it i think we finished it on a sunday and and in vancouver and the next sunday we were in toronto recording it and somehow between in those seven days brian's manager bruce allen managed to get you know Joni mitchell oscar peterson John Candy, Geddy Lee. I mean, it was absolutely amazing what, what came together in a very, very short period of time. And
0: another fact that I found amazing, uh, just from reading sort of the process of how you, you came together with the song, was that uh, the master track was just the demo that you and David made. Um, For
1: the most part, yeah, we, we cut we cut a track in my home studio and kept... Kept most of it. I mean, you know, and th- and then we overdubbed drums at Little Mountain Sound, and Paul Dean added some guitar. But yeah, uh, quite a bit of what was recorded in my home studio ended up being the, the the bed, the bed mm-hmm. track for the song.
0: And um, when you guys were putting the song together, did you know uh, who you wanted to sing each line? Like, how was that determined?
1: Oh, uh, we had that once we knew who was coming. In fact, we did it on the on the plane on the flight to, from Vancouver to Toronto. Me and Brian and uh, I think, but Mike Reno, I think from Loverboy, sat with the lyric and kind of went, okay, why don't we have Gordon Lightfoot sing the first line and we've we'll got Burton Cummins to sing the. Same. It was pretty fun, just putting putting that list together.
0: Now, um, what was the session like having all those big names in one place?
1: It was pretty cool. I mean, I- again, um, you know, d- d- no matter how much success I've had in my career, I'm still just a kid and a fan and big gaga about my heroes. So for me, it was like being in the same room as Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and, you know, Burton Cummings and, you know, the my my heroes from, you know, my teens and twenties. I mean, it was quite, quite overwhelming. It was and and um you know some guys from the bands, and i mean it just it was just amazing you know it really was
0: i'm always sort of interested in learning about recording techniques especially from back in the day when everything was done on tape and you didn't have an unlimited number of tracks to work with so um you know there's a there's a lot going on especially with the vocals in this song so how was how was the song sort of split up in that regard
1: i'm, I'm trying to think back now we, in those days they were it was 24 track machines and this is before digital so it was 24 track analog and I think we did um a mix to two tracks so we kept the 24 tracks with instruments on it and then we did a a mix to two tracks of another 24 machine so we had the the band track in stereo on say tracks one and two and that left open like you know 20 two tracks, although take away a track for code, which was used to sync the machines. So we had another 20 plus, 20 or 21 tracks for vocals. So, and and also, because uh, other than the big backing vocals, you know, the choruses, excuse me, um, everyone kind of sang one line. So we could have Gordon Lightfoot on track two, and the next line would be. Uh, whoever I'd have to again look back Burton Cummings uh, I think was after Cummings we could have him on 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 the next track and then we could go back to the Gordon Lightfoot track a little bit later with no risk of of erasing his vocal you know so we could sort of have Gordon and other people on other tracks so yeah it was a it was a little bit of a of a you know figuring out ahead of time how it was all going to work it was engineered by a guy guy named Hayward Parrott you know, very experienced uh, engineer. So he, he knew exactly what he was doing. So we, we just kind of left that in his, in his right. realm. Yeah.
0: And another crazy aspect that you oversaw was getting Bruce Coburn's part into the song. And for those that don't know what happened there, uh, like what did you have to do to get Bruce into the song?
1: Yeah, th- th- I forgot about that. Thanks for reminding me. So, I mean, Bruce Coburn was, you know, uh, for a bunch of reasons, I mean, you know, uh, well-loved, kind of Canadian folk artist and, and socially active. And we just thought it would be great to have him involved. And um, unfortunately he was on tour in Germany at the time and um, couldn't do it. So uh, someone said the only way we could do it is if um, somebody flies over there and we book a, a studio and, and record them. I mean, nowadays he, he could have just, sung his line into his iPhone and, and uh, emailed it to us. But you have to remember, this is before the internet, yeah. before digital, this is analog. So uh, silly me, I said, well, I'll, I'll go over, you know, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go do it. So um, so I was in Vancouver. So what they did is they, we, we, I had to take a tape with me to Germany and then book studio and um, go in with the tape and get Bruce's vocal on the tape and then bring the tape back. So I flew from, uh, the good news is Air Canada, because we're doing this for charity, Air Canada offered to give us free flights, but the free flights were kind of like not direct. So, so I flew from Vancouver to Toronto, picked up the tape from Hayward's Uh, the engineer then I flew from Toronto to Frankfurt and Bruce was in
0: wasn't it uh, Hamburg
1: Hamburg yeah then I flew from Frankfurt to Hamburg and I arrived around dinner time and Bruce was playing a gig that night in a in a small venue and I got together with Bruce and Bruce says "So, so tell me about this project I went Oh, well, it's like the Canadian uh contribution to um famine relief, like you know, like we are the world and do they know it's Christmas? And he said, Well, I don't I don't really know if I want to wanna be involved. And I went, What? <laughs> <laughs> I just I just flew halfway around the world. I think I forget it was something like six with layovers, it was something like sixteen or eighteen hours of of flying, Vancouver to Toronto, Toronto to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Hamburg. Anyway, um, um, before I reached for Bruce's neck with my claws, um, we had a further chat about it. And and he came around and agreed to do it. Uh, I don't know if he was ever not going to do it. He just kind of had a moment there where he was like, you know, I'm not really sure. Anyway, the next day we went in the studio, Uh, Bruce sang uh, beautifully, now had his voice on tape so they were mixing the next day in los angeles Uh, umberto uh, gatica was mixing at uh, Lion share studio in la so i'm in hamburg so the next morning i get up i fly from hamburg to frankfurt frankfurt to i think vancouver or or toronto i forget which because i had to i had to pick oh i had to pick up the tape the master tape i think to bring with me so Yeah, I think I flew to Toronto, picked up the tape, and then I guess I flew from Toronto to LA. And by this time, I hadn't slept for about three days, Um, maybe an hour or something. I mean, and I um, remember getting out of the car, it was really embarrassing, Uh, LA airport, uh, David Foster picked me up. And um, I, I remember coming off the plane and, my legs gave out. I I, mm-hmm. I actually <laughs> fell down, <laughs> kind of collapsed from exhaustion. And I mean, I, I was okay, but it was just that I, I literally I just totally fried myself doing doing this uh, Bruce Kerber and like five seconds of, mm-hmm. of vocal. <laughs> but anyway, we went to the studio, flew his vocal into the master tape, and then uh, Umberto did a you know outstanding job of stitching it all together.
0: And uh, yeah, it just it must have been such an amazing project to be a part of working with all those big names and raising money for a good cause. And I remember hearing the song for the first time when I was in high school because I was really into Rush at that time. And I was like, oh, hey, Getty's on it. And he, he's he got, I think, one of the, the best lines on the song there. And uh, it's its also funny, my mom uh, and I have talked about the song and she's she thinks it's better than We Are the World. Well,
1: oh, well, tell your mom thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh just uh quickly I wanted to ask you about the songs you wrote for uh, Roger Daltrey because I'm a huge fan of The Who. Uh so I wanted to know what it was like to write some songs for him.
1: Well, uh, great. Uh, Brian um Brian knew Roger, Brian's girlfriend at the time, Vicky Russell, was the daughter of Ken Russell who uh directed the f- uh the film was it Quadrophenia or um what film am I thinking of? what film was uh, Tommy sorry Tommy directed Tommy and Vicky as a little girl was in the film. So Vicky knew Roger and I, I I think Vicky introduced Brian to Roger and they went out for dinner one night and Roger was doing an album and Brian said, hey, you know she needs some songs. So we wrote our uh, we did two songs <clears throat> for Roger. One was a song we already had kicking around. I think we'd written it for Stevie Nicks. It was called "Let Me Down Easy." I think we wrote it for Stevie Nicks, but either she didn't do it, or we never even got it through in the first place. And then the second song, called "Rebel," uh, we wrote especially for Roger. We we kind of imagined from his point of view if he, he I don't think Roger writes songs, but we imagined if he could, what would he want to say? And uh, just imagined this English guy in a small town. With a kind of a crappy job and just wanting to get out of there, you know, mm-hmm. and and being a little bit of a rebel, just you know, everyone else in his town just stayed. And I I had re- remember reading something one time. It was in the newspaper one day, just randomly. It was um, I remember exactly. Uh, there was a school teacher in the town of Cheddar, famous for the cheese. The town of Cheddar in England, a school teacher um and there were some archaeologists doing had discovered uh like a 10,000 year old gravesite uh, near the town and uh, were able to extract dna um and thought let's collect some dna from locals like any anyone who's who whose family has been here for generations and people would say yeah my father was born here my grandfather was born here Think my great-grandmother was, but no, nobody would know ten thousand years back. Maybe it was five thousand, but it was a long, very long time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this one school teacher who who had a long family history in the town, uh, his DNA matched with one of these um, people from who had been buried like thousands and thousands of years ago. The point being, often in in small town England, people just don't leave. You know, I mean, I remember. I remember one time uh, I, I had a, uh, I lived for a number of years, mostly summer, so I had a summer home in, in the little town of Sturgeon Falls in Northern Ontario. And I, I went to the post office one time, everybody knows everybody pretty much by name anyway, but I um, I went to the post office one time and said, um, can you, just, can you hold my mail? Like I'm going to be gone for uh, a couple of weeks. Um, and she said, oh, where are you going? She was about my age, the Postwoman at the at the desk. She says, "Oh, where are you going?" I said, "Oh, I'm just I'm just going over to England for for a bit." She goes, "Like on a on an airplane?" I said, "Uh, yeah." <laughs> she says, "I've I've never been on an airplane." And what I took from that was she'd really never maybe she'd been to Sudbury or North Bay, but I, I don't think she'd ever been much of anywhere, you know. Just and not that that's super common uh, up that way, but but. You know the point being sometimes these small towns people just you know they're born there they die there, their parents were born there and die there, so the song Rebel kind of came from, here's a guy who has decided I might have been born here but I'm, I'm not going to die here you know right. and he, like a rebel I'm, I'm out of here.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a great song. So um, now just uh, before we sort of move on to the guessing portion of the podcast, what we're here for, uh, I have something that I've developed called the record personality test so it's six questions and all you have to do is just answer with the first thing that comes to your head so uh what album have you been listening to the most lately
1: um the beatles get back
0: um what what's an album that when you listen to it you need to wear headphones and get lost in the music
1: wow just about any album i think but um i I mean literally any album um uh, that, that's my preferred way of listening. So I'd have to say an, any album.
0: What's an album that, in your opinion, is all killer, no filler?
1: Oh, boy. Um, Synchronicity. I mean, Abbey Road, uh, Sticky Fingers, Rolling Stones, um, ACDC, Highway to Hell, Joni Mitchell, Blue, Hijira, um, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water, there's there's loads
0: um so you're on a cross country road trip uh what's an album that you need to take with you
1: wow um i mean i've got fairly eclectic tastes i mean i might you know if on a road trip if i'm driving i, I might you might want to be hank williams you know it's just just that that kind of that's that's to me that's road music
0: uh what's a good album to play when you're on a first date
1: I haven't been on a first date for a very long time. <laughs> uh, I, I'd be at a loss for that. I can't even answer that question.
0: Okay, yeah, no problem. Uh, so uh, finally, what's an album that you've played so many times that you can't listen to it anymore?
1: I don't think I've ever. I don't think any album has ever worn out its welcome. If yeah, there's not there's nothing that I've ever burned out on ever.
0: That's good. All right, Jim, we are now moving into the portion of this podcast for which it gets its name. I'll go over the rules for you and any new listeners out there. Uh, So I have a bag here. uh, And inside this bag is a record that I picked from my collection of nearly 400 albums. I will give you three clues about that album to steer you in the right direction. And then you can ask me 15 yes or no questions to determine the identity of the album. Uh, just as an extra tip, uh, you can absolutely right off the back bat ask uh, questions like, is it Purple Rain? But uh, if all your questions are like that, you may run out of them. So Jim, Jim Valance, are you ready to guess that record? I am. All right, here are your three clues. This album was released in the 1970s It features three singles that reached the top spot of the Billboard Hot 100, and this record was not released when it was supposed to be. Question one.
1: Um, Is it Canadian?
0: It's not Canadian. Question two.
1: Is it a band or an artist?
0: It is a band. Question three.
1: Uh, Is it an American band?
0: It's not an American band. Question four. Is it
1: a British band?
0: It is a British band. Question five. Is it
1: a three-piece band?
0: It's not a three-piece band. Question six.
1: Is there a woman in the band?
0: There is not. Question seven.
1: Is it progressive rock?
0: It's not progressive rock. If you need any hints, I'm happy to give you an extra hint.
1: Well, yeah, I'm going to need some hints because I'm 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 not even close.
0: Okay, um, I'll uh, I'll say that we have talked about this band already in this podcast. Okay. <laughs> Question eight: Is it the Who? It's not the Who. Question nine: Talked about this
1: band already? Oh, you know, my memory's really good, but it's short. <laughs> um. Is it a band I've written before?
0: Uh no. Question ten.
1: Is it the Rolling Stones?
0: It's not the Rolling Stones. But uh they're they're just as legendary.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> it's it's uh Get Back by the Beatles.
0: Jim Valance, you are correct. The record I pulled from the collection was Let It Be.
1: Let It Be, yeah, yeah. Now, now called Get Back, I guess. Yeah. The new version of it. Um, yeah, it wasn't released when it was supposed to be. I should have got that. I should have got that uh, clue, because it was recorded in '69, mm-hmm. and then Abbey Road was recorded and released, and then after that they released uh, Let It Be.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, and I thought it would be a very topical choice because there's the new Get Back documentary that just released on Disney Plus. Uh, Quickly, though, I'm going to give some fast facts about Let It Be for those who haven't heard the album. Uh, It was released on May 8th, 1970, about a month after the Beatles broke up. Uh, Despite topping the charts in the US, UK, and Canada, the album was very polarizing at the time of its release, coming to be regarded as one of the most controversial albums of all time. As I mentioned in The Clues, the album had three songs that reached number one, the title track, Get Back. And the long and winding road so just sort of continuing our Beatles discussion here I noticed on your website that you've got some cool uh, Beatles memorabilia I do Uh, yeah the John Lennon visa I believe was the one I saw there how did uh, what's the story behind that
1: Um, well the story story behind the visa itself is uh, in August 1960 the Beatles who were still teenagers. John was, I don't think John had even turned 19 yet in August. Yeah, he hadn't, he wasn't yet 19. Paul would have been 18, George 17. Uh, Ringo hadn't joined the band yet. Uh, they uh, went to Hamburg to play in some clubs there And this, in order to to do that, they had to have some uh, German uh, paperwork for permission to work in Germany. So, um, this is like 18 pages that spans the time they were in Germany, which is from 1960 through June 62. Um, And each time they went over there, they had to do more paperwork. So, I I have all the... uh, visas and passport photos and and things that that, uh, sean's permission to work in germany
0: that's incredible yeah if i uh if i can ever become a successful musician and have lots of money i i would love to like buy uh an album that's signed by the four of them i'd love to collect something like that um now moving back to let it be it has a very weird timeline as we were talking about the majority of songs of the songs were written and recorded in January of 1969. But the project was put on the shelf. They went and made Abbey Road, which is actually the last album they did together. And it's also odd because it doesn't really have a producer. Um, Glenn, Glenn Johns oversaw the sessions in 1969, but Phil Spector then had the task of putting together those recordings a year later in 1970. And the group's longtime producer, George Martin, was also involved in the sessions. What was uh, your initial impression of the album when you first heard it?
1: Uh, well, I mean, every new Beatle album was was just uh, such a gift. Um, I, I, I think my impression, because Abbey Road was such a slick album. It was, you know, just beautifully produced with strings and, and the arrangements were fleshed out and, you know, lots of beautiful backing vocals overdubbed and so on. Um, so, I mean, we didn't know at the time that, let it be had been recorded before abbey road because it came out after so as far as we knew it was just the next album after after abbey road um and so i remember uh, as a fan back then um i would have been maybe 18 when when abbey road came out sorry when um let it be came out um just thinking it was a little unpolished but it was supposed to be that was the whole idea you know even though phil spector kind of put his kind of fairy dust on it with some strings and overdubs and so on. For the most part, it was still just the band, you know, playing live without much embellishment. So I I think initially I I was, I found it a little, (coughs) excuse me, underproduced. But then of course, as time goes by, you realize that was how it was intended to be. And then I saw the film around the same time too. It was released, I think in 1970 or not long after, Mm -hmm. the the first um, edit of the film. Um, and then over time it just grows on you because the songs are so good you know let it be and get back and and so on
0: yeah and um, so yeah the the other fascinating aspect about the album was that it was originally going to they were going to do a live TV special at Twickenham Film Studios where they would play these new songs but they were really against the clock uh, because they had three weeks to do it all because Ringo was gonna go film a movie and um, as and they were being rehearsed uh, while or sorry they were being filmed while they were rehearsing, and it captures a lot of the tension that they were going through at the time. And then they scrapped the TV special, and um, the uh, film director Michael Lindsay Hogg was then uh, then had to sort of turn it into a documentary of the band making this album. And they moved to a makeshift studio at the Apple Record headquarters on Savile Row. Uh, where they properly recorded the new songs and then to sort of have a big finale for this documentary they went up on the roof and and played some songs which of course was their final appearance in public um final performance in public i should say and as you mentioned the original documentary came out in may of 1970 as well and it was poorly received by critics and the band uh but peter jackson has taken all that footage and put it in as sort of a new cut of this documentary that's almost eight hours long. So have you had the chance to uh, see this new one yet? Uh, I have. What did you think of it?
1: Well, I mean, I thought it could have been maybe three hours. Um, There's an, have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the moments like when you literally see the song get back- Being written. Just come out of- thin air. There's a moment where the song doesn't exist and two seconds later it does uh, as, as Paul just kind of conjures it out of, out of thin air. I mean, that sort of stuff was, was amazing. Uh, Seeing them doing serious rehearsal in preparation for the rooftop concert. Uh, But there were, there was hours and hours of just them being silly, you know, and as, as, as much fun as it was to see that, um, how about we just get twenty minutes of that and then get on with it? I, I just found the the goofing around way over overused and, and and I'm I'm left wondering. Okay, if it was going to be eight hours, you know, if they had taken out the goofiness, was there more of that? You know, the moment "Let It Be" came into being, or the moment you know each, each song kind of uh, appeared. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would have enjoyed seeing more of the creative process and the series rehearsing rather than all the sort of just goofing around.
0: And yeah, it, it, I could see someone that's not a fan of the band, maybe be kind of like bored watching it. Um, but I mean, because it's the Beatles and there's just like, there, there's barely any footage of them sort of working like this. It's very fascinating. Um, and it's sorta, it's interesting. You talk about, um, the uh seeing things that maybe didn't get put in the final product i saw an interview with peter jackson where he was talking about a um there was a, a performance they did of one after 909 in the studio that was really good but he left it out because uh it was in the rooftop performance shortly after that so um it was sort of stuff like that but it is interesting watching them write together because it it feels like if you've been in a band that's what it's like when you're writing songs with other people and it's it's sort of relatable to see like wow this is the biggest band in the world but they still you know are just a band at the end of the day and it doesn't shy away from the tension that the band was going through because uh, it even it shows the exact moment where George quits the band which is kind of crazy to see now uh, the the other interesting thing. I think that helps uh sort of change the narrative of the story is that you see a lot of glenn johns because i didn't even really know he was involved in the sessions i thought it was phil Spector doing it but then you see that phil Spector isn't even in this documentary glenn johns is the guy recording all these songs so uh i think that kind of gives him some uh some props there
1: yeah well they they dumped it on him after they decided to abandon the project they dumped it on Glenn Johns and said, Here, you make something of this. And he took it to Olympic Studios and uh did a mix, which they I I, th- I think it's a mix that McCartney preferred. It might even be what was called the naked, the naked mix. Right. Like, and then, but they ultimately weren't happy with that either. So John Lennon uh gave it to Phil Spector and dumped it on him and said, Here, you you see if you can do something with it so specter um you know put you know strings and choirs and all kinds of things on on some of the songs mm-hmm. and that was the album that was released and that we were most familiar with in the in the 70s yeah but now yeah heard... but glenn, yeah glenn gets credit for certainly recording the the, the album and mm-hmm. and you know i think he's a, a, to this day a little bummed that his mix didn't uh, become the definitive version but
0: now i figured uh, we could just go through it track by track here and you can chime in Uh, Whenever you have something to say, but it starts off with two of us, which is a nice little acoustic number. And we see in the documentary that the track really goes through a lengthy process to sort of end up with the one that we hear on the album. And it kind of reminds me of some songs that Paul would later do with Wings, Um, like Another Day or um, songs like that. Then uh, "Dig a Pony" was one of the songs that was recorded on the roof, and that one also kind of went through some changes to get there. "Across the Universe" is probably my favorite, one of my favorite Beatles songs of all time. There's there's something just so profound to me, and it was one of the songs that Phil Spector um, messed around with and added strings and stuff. And uh, av- having heard both versions, I think I actually kind of prefer it with the orchestra on it. But um, that's, uh, that's one of the songs that really got spectered. Then, I, Me, Mine was one of the Harrison-penned songs. And we see in the documentary, like, the moment when George writes the song, but it was unfinished in those initial sessions. And it got properly recorded in January of 1970 by George, Paul, and Ringo, which made it one of the last, or I think it was the last new song ever recorded by the group. Um, then we've got the title track, Let It Be, which is sandwiched in between Dig It and Maggie May," which are kind of filler tracks. But uh, Let It Be, of course, you know, one of their most famous songs. I've Got A Feeling and One After 909 are two, the other two songs from the rooftop concert that made it on the album. Uh, I really like I've Got A Feeling. I think that's an underrated song. And One After 909 is interesting because it was a song they did in their early days yes which is kind great, of yeah. it's kind of a theme of the album and you see that a lot in the documentary where they're kind of playing some of their older tracks um then we have the long and winding road which is one of their strongest ballads and the last number one hit and i think this was a, a song that really angered paul mccartney when phil Spector put yeah the orchestra on it yeah The album then ends with uh, another Harrison song for you, Blue, and then it ends with Get Back, which is probably one of the best rock and roll songs of all time. Um, So
1: good.
0: And uh, I can consider, or I can see why people may not consider it their best, but I've always enjoyed it ever since I was a kid. And, um, you know, I think um, since a big point of the album is that the band wasn't keen on sort of how the songs ended up, what do you think of the the production on songs like the the long and winding road?
1: Um, I, I mean, the first version I heard of it was the Spectre production, so that was kind of the one that was implanted, you know, in in, in my brain. But but I, I I kind of have to agree with Paul too that there's something about just the unadorned version that's very very endearing, you know. Mm-hmm. So and and you have to wonder like these songs. Any any one of these songs could have made it through to the Abbey Road album, yeah. You know, uh, like I mean, they they worked on Bathroom Window and
0: something and something. Uh, yeah. Oh, darling, Octopus's Garden. Yeah, there was a lot of songs they did that ended up on Abbey Road. So
1: any one of these songs could have made it through to Abbey Road, and and, and you have to wonder what 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 they would have sounded like if if they got the full treatment. You know, four Beatles plus George Martin plus. Mm-hmm. Plus Jeff Emmerich, although even Abbey Road, um, uh, the first bit of Abbey Road, uh, they they think that they they finished obviously in January '69. They they finished the uh, the get back recordings, and it wasn't too long after April or May they started the work on Abbey Road. I think the first thing, uh, I want you she so heavy. I think is the first thing they recorded. It mm-hmm. was actually recorded. It started at Trident Studio, not at not at not at EMI Studio and um uh, glenn johns uh, was the engineer on that so he he and billy preston was on it so they kind of took the glenn johns billy preston thing and carried it over into the first bits of abbey road and then jeff Emmerich came back in for for the rest of the album yeah and the, and the mixing
0: and it's it's interesting when watching the documentary uh, how much the sessions change over the course of that month because they start at Twickenham and it's very bad for the band and you can just tell they're not happy there. And the songs are quite off too. The whole time you're like, how are they going to end up with the finished product? And it's amazing how much the tone shifts when they move to Apple. And it um, it changes even more when Billy Preston shows up. Like The first song he plays on is I've Got a Feeling and right away I was like, oh, yeah, that's it.
1: Yeah, yeah it's um, magic. Yeah.
0: It's kind of reminds me of like when they were making the White Album and they were at each other the whole time. And then George brings in Eric Clapton to do While My Guitar Gently Weeps and they all got on their best behavior again. Um, it's also funny with Billy because they knew him in their Hamburg days. And with the whole theme of the album being like a return to the roots, it was kind of interesting to see that come full circle and have a guy from Hamburg playing on these songs. He,
1: he was only 16 when they first met him. Yeah, playing in Little Richard's band.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. It's also it's also fun to watch the rooftop concert, uh, which is shown in its entirety in the documentary. Uh, and I think it proved the band could still absolutely play great live. And it made me wonder, like, what would have happened if they did the TV special or did the, the concert like they were planning? And it shows the reaction from the crowd and the police. And um, it's it, it's interesting to see the contrast of the look of the band with the people in the crowd. Um, Like they're the only ones with long hair and and flashy clothes, it's it's sort of interesting. Yeah, Yeah. And another thing that I think would surprise people with the Rooftop concert is that um, they only got three songs out of it on the uh, record. Uh, They kind of trick you into thinking, get back and don't let me down, were recorded on the roof as well, but those were done in the studio. Um, And actually on the back here, of the album it says this is a new phase Beatle album essential to the content of the film let it be was that they performed live for many tracks comes with the warmth and the freshness of a live performance as reproduced for disc by phil Spector. but i mean yeah there's really if if we're talking like true live songs there's really only three on the record
1: yeah yeah
0: now lastly i just want to ask you have you met any of the beatles
1: i've met uh actually yeah Ringo three times and Paul three times. Yes. Wow.
0: What, what what were those like? What were those meetings?
1: Um, well, it was I mean, again, as a fan, it's just it's it's magical, you know. Uh the very first time I met Ringo uh was in Vancouver. He and Harry Nilsson uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> came, came up to Vancouver to do some recording. Um and the next time I met him was also in Vancouver. Um, he was rehearsing f- with one of his bands for his uh, All-Star tour. And the third time was at Mark Hudson's studio in Los Angeles. And then Paul, I met him backstage in Brooklyn when he was uh doing a concert there first time and then the second time he and I stood side by side side stage Hyde Park for a, a Jeff Lynn concert. Wow yeah that's crazy th- yeah the third time i'm trying to remember where the third time was um maybe even i met four times but yeah i mean and they're both lovely guys paul and ringo just really really sweet generous with their time i think they know i think they know you're freaking out you know and they they kind of go to their way to make you feel okay
0: yeah no i i that's if i could meet both of them uh one day that that would be amazing for sure Well, we've reached the end of the episode. I want to uh, once again, thank Jim Valance for being the guest of honor today. You've done so much amazing work that I admire greatly. And there's just not enough time to go over everything you've done in your career in a single podcast. But I, I thank you very much for coming on.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. And thank, uh, thank you to the listeners out there. Uh, we're just getting started with this podcast. So while it's good to leave reviews wherever you're listening, Uh, Make sure you also let your friends know podcasts live and die by word of mouth. So if you have a friend that loves music, maybe get them to check out the podcast. We're also on Instagram at guess that record. So give us a follow there. That would be appreciated. Remember to keep rocking and we'll see you on the next episode of guess that record.